Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Have you ever heard that a company or a country is powered by 100% renewable energy? Well, I've heard that too. And from what I gather, it's considered a fairly plausible claim because I get questions about it all the time. Now, for this reason, I recently put out a piece called uh, The Truth About Apple's 100% Renewable Energy Usage. And I had actually written about this subject Uh, back in November of 2014 as well on Medium. The most recent one was on Forbes. Uh, But I came across an article by a good friend of mine and a friend of the show and a friend of CIP and a a friend of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and a friend of energy, Travis Fisher, uh, which discussed the 100% issue with many, many different companies. And I thought that would be interesting to discuss. You should also definitely read the article, but he really shows how this is an incredibly dishonest claim and how it's very destructive to people's perception of energy and it has a very destructive influence on the kind of choices that they make about energy. So we will be back with Travis Fisher talking about 100% renewable on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Travis Fisher, an economist at the Institute for Energy Research. Travis, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. Great to be back. Now, I recently published a piece on Forbes uh, about what I regard as Apple's utter dishonesty with regard to its claim to be 100% renewable. And you fairly pointed out to me that you had already written such a piece uh, six, eight months ago in which you exposed this fallacy uh, among many, many companies. So it's called Busting the 100% Renewable Myth, and we will link to it. Uh, But I thought we'd talk about exactly what's going on with Apple and the other companies and uh, why this is such an important issue. So let's start out with just for the uninitiated, what is the claim being made and what range of companies are making it? Uh, So generally the claim is if you want to be considered 100% renewable, you take as a company, you would take your total demand for a year and that would be in terms of megawatt hours. You take that number and you say, well, we're responsible for putting X amount, the same amount of renewable power onto the grid. So in in Apple's case, it's just they either own the generation directly, so they own wind turbines that generate a certain amount of power, or they buy renewable energy certificates that account for a certain amount of power. And if the two things add up, you can say you're 100% renewable. So in Apple's case, uh, they actually consume a lot of power. So in order to match that, um, they have to 
own a certain amount of generation and also um, buy a certain amount of recs. Recs. Spell that out. Uh, renewable energy certificates. Renewable energy certificates. Well, I want to st step back a level and just say what people think is going on when they hear this. Because what, what they think, uh, I'm certain in almost all cases, is that what you have is Apple bought a bunch of solar arrays and wind turbines. And then those are feeding into all of its different uh, power-related things. You know, its, its facilities, its, its factories, its uh, various data centers. And therefore, they are being progressive by getting the energy, quote-unquote, from nature, while everyone else is getting their power using these unnecessary, uh, dirty, fact, you know, energy uh, power plants with all of these smokestacks burning evil coal and gas or getting their energy through uh, dangerous nuclear power. So that's, I think, the, the, if you say, like, this is, X is powered by Y, you tend to think of Y as directly connected to X and sufficiently connected to X. So even if you say, well, my, my, uh, you know, my car is powered by gasoline, well, gasoline goes into your car and your car runs on that. So what you're talking about is, is already, I think, very different from people's mental model, which is in this case, you are, uh, you know, you, you are perhaps buying the solar panels and windmills, or you're buying the right to claim credit for other solar panels and windmills. And then you're, you're comparing that accounting wise versus your own, uh, energy, uh, energy consumption. Now let, let's ask this, why aren't they doing the first scenario? If, if solar and wind are so practical, why aren't they simply just buying the plants and, and getting all of their electricity from those? Well, th that actually gets to the heart of it. That, that, that's the crucial question to ask is, are these companies drawing power from the power grid? Or is it more of a, you know, it conjures up sort of a, a cartoon image of if you have a giant windmill, uh, if you have this giant turbine that is supposed to produce, say, two megawatts, you have a, a factory that's supposed to run on about two megawatts, why not just plug the one into the other? And there you go, you, you, you can power your factory with wind power. Uh, the trouble is, wind power is not only dilute, but intermittent. So if you have say a two megawatt wind turbine that only runs at about a third of its capacity on average, which is a, a general stat that's true. Um, how is that factory going to run the other two thirds of the time? And how are you going to dictate when it's going to run? So really the, the reason companies do use grid power and they, the answer to that question, you know, are you plugged into the grid? The answer is almost always yes. Grid power is so reliable and so abundant affordable, uh, there's no reason to go off grid. So, I mean, unless you're actually in a part of the country that has no power lines going to there, but so if, if you're, if you're trying to run a factory, you, you don't, you absolutely do not want to run it on either wind exclusively, solar exclusively, or even a combination of the two. Um, because let's, let's say you need to do what you, what you want to do. Say if you're Apple and you're trying to run a data center, do you want that center to crash because the sunset or because the wind died down. Uh, and what they want is a very consistent product, and you can get that from grid power, which uh, if you check the stats, it's something like 86% of grid power is from either coal, natural gas, or nuclear plants. And there's a reason for that, and those 
are actually very consistent uh, on-demand power sources. So we wouldn't want to run our lives. We wouldn't, wouldn't want to run factories on something as intermittent as wind or solar power. Yeah, I mean, another way to think of the grid issue is that if someone could imagine that they have this euphemism smart grid, uh, which is a whole subject unto itself. But imagine they, they could say, well, we're on a modern grid and it's just solar and wind, and that's going to be the solution, and we'll all power ourselves off of that. But the reason that they're not doing that is because the those technologies can't support one of the essential thing that things that makes a grid work and makes it great, which is reliable on-demand uh, power. So then, so if we take, uh, well, any of these companies, we can take Apple to start with. So Apple is is saying that, oh, we've got all this energy usage and we're powering it all uh, by this. They're just, they're just plugging into a grid, right? I mean, they're just plugging into a grid. And then can they, is there some way for them to actually just get the solar and wind, and wind power from the grid and somehow exclude the other things? Uh, the short answer is no. And as that's actually another crucial question. And it, you almost have to get to it by analogy because I, I think there are just a, a lot of folks who don't, haven't thought about how the grid works. It's massive. And there's a lot of power plants supplying to the same grid. And they're actually sort of keeping it afloat. Um, one, one analogy that folks use is sort of the level of water in a bathtub. So that would be the total demand on the grid. So when you turn on an extra light or turn on an extra motor that's plugged into a, a socket, what, what happens is total demand goes up a little bit. And you can think of that as sort of, you need something to add water to the tub. And that's something that a coal plant or a gas plant would do very well. Uh, and when, when you use less, that level becomes less. But the, the point is, it's all mixed up. You can't, once you add the water to the tub or once you add the power to the grid, you can't parse out and say, well, this one's got a little tag on it that says it's wind power. So I'm going to use that one. I'm going to use this electron and not the coal-powered one. Um, there is no distinction once it's on the grid. It's all, it's all very well mixed up, and you can't actually selectively use, not in the physical sense, you can't. In the accounting sense, and that's kind of what Apple does, in the accounting sense, you can say, well, on paper, I bought this much wind power, and I used this much power from the grid, so I'm just going to kind of assume that the power that I used off the grid was this wind power that I either supplied or bought. Well, they don't even just assume it, right? I mean, they they take these measures, like buying these RECs, the, the renewable energy credits, to get credit. So let's say I'm at their North Carolina facility, and I'm just a regular, you know, just a regular user, uh, and I'm using, like everyone else, I'm using, I forget exactly that facility's percentages, but let's say I'm using, uh, you know, even 10% unreliable solar and wind is coming to me occasionally and fits and starts as it's available on the network. And then I'm mostly getting coal and nuclear, which I believe are the major inputs there. Uh, if Apple is taking credit for more than it's actually using of the solar and wind, if it's saying, if it's taking that, that little sliver, that 10%, and appropriating most of it to itself, isn't it falsely saying that I'm using less solar and wind than I am and that I'm using more coal and nuclear that I am? And isn't that really unfair? Yeah, it's 
it's unfair for a few reasons. I mean, so the, on on the one hand, yeah, you're you're saying that the power that I'm using off the same exact grid, the same exact electrons, you're saying, well, my power, the the stuff that I'm drawing off the grid is wind and solar, and the stuff that you're drawing off the grid is somehow more of the other stuff, uh, and that's just impossible, and it's it, it's very misleading. Um, because it almost implies that it is possible to do, and the fact that it's impossible, it just, I don't know, the the whole thing, it's, I can't even wrap my mind around it. It's more like, if there were a company that said, well, we run our data centers on pixie dust instead of uh, coal and gas and whatever, that that's, that's something what it sounds like to me when a company is like, well, we're renewable in the rest of the grid, sorry, you're just less than that. Um, it sounds to me a little bit like pixie dust. Well, there are different analogies you can use, and I, I have one, and then I'll ask you about yours. Uh, the the one I use is is the idea of your with Apple. You know, it's like uh, Tim Cook wants to sail across the ocean, but he doesn't want to use any oil, and or sail. I mean, sail euphemistically. He wants to get across the ocean a reliable amount of time, so he doesn't want to he doesn't want to sail. Uh, and he you know he says, well, I want to get across but I somehow don't want to emit CO2. Well, the, the main answer is too bad, or you know, maybe you can get a nuclear submarine, but that wouldn't be, uh, you know, that wouldn't be quote-unquote renewable either. So the idea I had as well, but if, if he could somehow mount a sail on, uh, on the boat that's really being powered by oil, and for some amount of time, I mean, I, I think I say 10% usually, but it would probably be like you know, 1% or something like that, but yeah, let's say it's, it's 1% and there are 100 passengers on the boat. So 1% of the energy that's actually used to propel the boat is intermittently wind. And so Tim says to the other 99 people, hey, you know, I'll give you a bunch of money if you, if you say that instead of 99% oil, 1% wind, that you say 100% oil, 0% wind. And then you add all of those up and then I, Tim Cook, get 0% oil, 100% wind. I mean, you just say that's insane. You're all on the same boat, <laughs> literally. You're just going, uh, and so it's just this this fiction to act like the sale was somehow a legitimate way of accomplishing this thing. It was just this supplemental thing that was probably more trouble than it's worth. So I like that one. You have one though that I like too that you used in this article about a, a certain kind of about oxygen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in in the same way that you sort of you have a general idea of what. The, the mix in the air is something like 20% oxygen in the atmosphere. We don't really know. I mean, I can't tell you offhand which trees or which plants or algae actually generated, actually made that oxygen available to us. But it's the same idea because it's so mixed and you don't know exactly where things are coming from all the time. It's the same idea as saying, well, the air that I breathe, you know, the, the O2 molecules that, that I'm using, those are, those are purely eucalyptus O2. That's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pure, uh, and everybody else, you're, you're using all the other stuff. It's like that, that is how insane it is to me to, to claim that the power you're drawing from the grid is somehow either wind or solar. It's like you, you pick the one source that, that you want to say you are, and you sort of apply a label to it. But in the practical sense, it means absolutely nothing. Now I, I mentioned the, the malfeasance of Apple in this regard. But in your article, you show a very wide range of, of companies that, that claim this. And in fact, there's an EPA list of 100% green power users. 
Now, what kinds of companies are on this list? Well, one thing to point out, too, is that Apple is actually not even on this list because what the list captures is companies in terms of their whole uh, power consumption over the year. So when Apple focuses on going 100% renewable, it focuses on just data centers. And it's sort of piecemeal is picking up things like, well, we're adding more and more stores that are 100% renewable. And so they're not even pretending that their factories are 100% renewable. Uh, I think that would be an extra step that would be too far for them. Um, whoa, whoa, but wait, wait a second. It, but if I look at this list, DHL is on there. I mean, DHL is just oil. That's their whole business. It's moving mm-hmm. stuff. So that, mm-hmm. but yet, according to the uh, EPA, it says that they're powered by wind. So are they just talking about DHL's corporate office or what? Because it, it, seemed, it would seem like the same standard could apply to Apple. Apple could just say, well, you know, we have a, a shack that's just powered by the sun. So we're 100% renewable. Exactly. So that it's also important to note that they're not talking about total energy. They're talking about electricity. So if you if you were to go to DHL and ask them to power their their entire fleet, all of their trucks with electricity, I don't think that's what they're doing. You, you'd have to correct me if that's true. I doubt that's what they're doing. Um, no, I mean they're also an international shipper. I mean, so I, yeah, so I, I, that's that's one extra step where it becomes more misleading. Is if you focus on just one part of your company, like Apple does with data centers, now, that's fairly electricity intensive. But it's it's also easy to cherry pick and say, uh, well, we're we're company X and our one part of our company is one hundred percent renewable. And sometimes that's something that's very uh, electricity not intensive so that that that's one separate way to get around it so in the case of dhl i imagine they're talking about a corporate office they're talking about lighting and heating and ac and things like that they're not talking about their fleet uh got it all right so so what kind of i i interrupted before what what's the range of companies that are on this list uh so if you arrange the list in terms of annual usage, the companies that are on the top are Intel Corporation, Microsoft, Kohl's Department Stores, Unilever, uh, District of Columbia is actually on there, the NHL, um, There's, and actually the, the EPA itself, so the EPA lists itself on its own list on sort of the uh, 100% green power users. And all of this, I mean, you tend to see a mix, but in general... What they're talking about is these companies have either bought by contract the output of solar and wind facilities and sometimes geothermal combined with the the recs. So the, you have the actual output and then you have sort of the on paper, we bought the renewable portion of the output of somebody else's solar plant, for example. Yeah, if you look at the, the category, and we'll link to the article, if you look at the category called providers, it's fascinating because you see the same names come up over and over and they don't look like energy companies. There's Sterling Planet, there's Renewable Choice Energy, uh, there's Hess Energy Marketing, and they all have these asterisks, which uh, I'm guessing means that they're not actual energy producers. Uh, well, I, I'm quite sure that, that at least most of them aren't. It, it looks like they're, they're just basically energy mislabelers. They they just buy you the right to uh, you know to call your energy green. Is that right? 
that's actually a perfect way to put it. And so your your analogy of Tim Cook in the boat reminds me a lot of what happens when I, I saw a strong parallel between that and if you buy CO2 offsets. Say you're going to travel internationally, you're going to get on a plane, obviously, because you know who wants to waste time, even if you're an environmentalist. Time's valuable. So then you get on a plane and you buy CO2 offsets, and somehow everybody else on the plane is dirtier than you. You're you're the you can wash your hands of it because you bought your CO2 offsets, but you're still living a very heavily fossil fueled lifestyle. You still chose the fossil fueled means of transportation in the, in the same way that these companies are still choosing a very good fossil fueled way of doing business, which is to use power from the grid. Um, but they have somehow washed their hands of sort of the negative PR of it. So they, it's a way of buying PR, but still using the same good power that's mostly fossil fueled. There's a great video, I don't know if you've seen it, by this guy, Remy, who sometimes does uh, spots for, or does videos for a reason. And he has one about offsets. And he has, I believe it's litter offsets. So the basic idea is that, you know, a guy just goes to his neighbor, dumps over his, his garbage bin, like onto the street, makes a complete mess, and then says, no, it's cool. I've got someone in Guatemala planting a tree. And exactly. I, I just thought, and then and then at the end they say next time murder offsets, which you know I guess is you kill someone and then you have a kid and so then it's all okay. So it's just this. It's just uh, it's such a it's such an immoral type of uh, of idea, you know, which would be because well another way of thinking of it when you see these things sometimes I'll see, hey. Offset your flight for fourteen bucks. So let's take, say, I'm taking a, a flight that's uh, four hundred twenty bucks, right? The fourteen bucks is three percent of that. Now, if it were really true that you could just uh, get rid of all the CO two consequences of oil for three percent, who wouldn't do that? I mean, in the establishment, I wouldn't, but. It's so it's just obviously a scam. Like if you could actually do that, then it would be. Why would we be bothering with solar and wind, which can't even remotely do that for any any kind of transportation? So it's it's just there's a certain there's a certain tendency uh, among movements that are trying to impose massive hardships on people to, at least on the front end, make it seem like. They're asking just for at at most minor inconveniences, which are more than made up for by the sense of su superiority you feel to your neighbors. But part of that sense of superiority is that it's not scalable, or the sense isn't scalable, but the 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 decision isn't scalable. So not everyone can buy renewable energy credits. Then it would break down. So basically, what it's doing is wealthier people are buying a sense of superiority over less wealthy people. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're still talking about 5% wind on the grid and less than 1% solar on the grid. And you know, I don't think the amount of credits would really change that. I mean, if you had more people trying to buy credits, the cost of the credit itself would be bid up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not fundamentally changing the way we live. And I think that's actually an amazing thing. I think that's probably the best thing. Um, but it does, I think the danger, especially in the policy world, which is where I try to work, is it gives people the impression that it's easy. It gives people 
the impression that, well, if Apple can go 100% renewable, then of course the whole country can because Apple just did it. They showed they could do it or Google or whoever else. And the irony is when these companies themselves, uh, I like to pick on Google on this, their uh, RE less than C program, the renewable energy less than coal in price program, they tried this. They said, well, we're going to set out, you know, we're smart. We're engineering people. We can figure this out. Let's make renewable energy cheaper than, than coal. Let's make, let's generate electricity at a lower cost than what you can get from coal. And they failed. They failed miserably and they wrote about it. And the fact that this stuff is out there and people are still sort of falling for the idea that it's easy. I mean, Google started in 2007 with that. And I, I recall when that started, it was actually, they were bragging about it. They wanted, to, they wanted the world to know that they could do it. And then by 2011, they somewhat quietly scrapped the program. And then later, th there was a piece about it explaining it. And it's just, it's shocking to me that on the one hand, uh, it comes off as such an easy task. Uh, but then when you see when companies have actually tried to do it, um, tried to make it a reality that you can actually make renewable energy that that would be somewhat on the level cost-wise from stuff that we know works. Um, it's failed, and it's that's the policy danger is that people get the impression over and over again: oh, this company is 100% renewable. Oh, this whole country somewhere else is 100% renewable. Therefore, it's easy. And why aren't we doing it? And that's that's the impression that, that I get when I talk to people about this: is they think it's easy, and they think there must be something evil in the way stopping us from doing it and it's really i don't think there's anything evil in the way i mean it's mostly physics and i i, I look forward to someone figuring figuring out a problem uh, or finding a, a source of electricity that that doesn't emit co2 that's actually leaps and bounds better than say coal or gas uh i would embrace that uh that new technology but the fact is it's not easy, and everybody just sort of assumes that it is. I wouldn't even give the renewable movement credit for looking for an energy technology that doesn't emit CO2 that's cost-effective, because uh, as I've mentioned many, many times and talk about in the moral case for fossil fuels, uh, the green movement, including the renewable movement, is overwhelmingly against nuclear power, and largely against large-scale hydropower. And if you sift through all the rationalizations, it amounts to they're not considered natural enough. Their environmental impact is considered too big, or in the case of nuclear, perhaps too, too new, too scary. And uh, therefore, the, the focus on renewable should not be taken as an ideal. I think in the, in the energy discussion, it's now taken for granted that the ideal form of energy is renewable, which in practice means coming directly from the sun or coming directly from the wind. Uh, and that is, that is just not at all true that that's the ideal. The ideal form of energy is the best form of energy for human beings. And part of that is that uh, it has enough of a time horizon where you know we can use it in a meaningful future, um, but you know it's that. But plus, it's cheap, plentiful, reliable for human beings now. And even if it were true that there were sources of energy that could just be used indefinitely for billions and billions of years, it would be bizarre to make that 
uh, your focus. The, the focus should be human beings in the relevant future, recognizing that human ingenuity can always find new ways of doing things. But even with solar and wind, you'd have to find new ways of doing things uh, because all the materials involved in the process are not remotely uh, renewable. So it's, it's just the whole issue that Center for Industrial Progress is focused on is reframing the whole discussion in terms of maximizing human well-being, not minimizing human impact. And this is just another issue where people take for granted that the goal should be to dehumanize the planet, to minimize our impact. And I, I think our goal should be to humanize the planet. And so fossil fuels by that standard are really good. And any competitor has a hard act to follow in terms of, uh, in terms of outcompeting them. Now I want to move on to discussing the uh, election with respect to this issue because numerous candidates, particularly Democrat candidates, have been making the claim that we can have a 100% renewable society or some, some very large uh, amount of solar and wind production running our country. So what's, first of all, what, who's making those claims and what's the extent of those claims? So probably the, the loudest candidate in this regard um, was O'Malley, and I believe his claim was that he would put us on a path to, as a whole country, be 100% renewable. And I'm pretty sure he was just focused on the power grid, but if he was also focused on transportation, um, that would be interesting. But even, even by itself, even just the power grid, I believe his target was 2050, which is also telling. Uh, these things are never any kind of short-term engagement. It's always, let's promise a lot, but by a year that's so far out that it doesn't matter if we don't reach that because we won't. And uh, you've seen that time and time again with this stuff goes back at least to Carter. Um, you know, when he put solar panels on the White House, the headlines were, I believe, 20% solar by the year 2000. You know, way off in the future, the year 2000, we would be 20% solar and we're sitting at less than 1% this year. So uh, time and time again, you see these big promises, and again, they come up short, but not not for any reason that's political and not because, say, not because Carter wasn't elected president. He was. Uh, the thing is, we still haven't wrapped our minds around the, the idea that these technologies are, in a fundamental way, inferior. And one one thing that illustrates that, something that, I, I think a lot of people just don't even know. It's fact. Um, there were uh, solar photovoltaics in existence around the same time of the first large-scale coal plant. And there were wind turbines that generated electricity around the same time. So we're looking in the 1880s. So these technologies existed, and they've always existed side-by-side side with the far superior coal plant. Uh, and the fact that coal is still winning, uh, so in, in terms of the the overall mix, uh, I know the 2014 data was 39% coal on the grid. So it was still the single largest source on the grid. And the fact that we haven't, it's not a failure that we haven't gone to sort of the the Carter promise or the fact that we're not going headlong into something like the Martin O'Malley promise. Um, it's just... It's a fact of the of the technologies that, that we're dealing with. So it's usually, you know, you talk about 100% renewable and then you make the goal so far ahead that nobody cares by the time you get there. But in hindsight, all those look pretty silly. 
you know, the 20% solar by the year 2000. It's another, not, not that I want to go on this exploitation kick, but if people are concerned about the illegitimate forms of inequality in a society, this is another sense in which wealthier people uh, buy themselves fake self-esteem at the expense of uh, poorer people. Because what happens with these kinds of schemes? Uh, you're not actually reaching this goal that shouldn't be a goal anyway, but you are uh, engaging in enough subsidies and mandates to significantly impact the price of electricity for everyone. If, if we take uh, places like Germany, with three to four times the electricity costs as the U.S., you see what even a relatively minor percentage of solar and wind on the grid can do to uh, the costs of people. So that's real people and real companies every day paying higher prices. And if that, you know, if that happened, we'd see a reversal of all the progress we've seen with the shale revolution and with cheaper natural gas uh, helping U.S. manufacturing. Uh, so it's just, and of course, electricity for, I mean, maybe people don't realize this, but electricity costs and fuel costs for poorer people are a disproportionately large part of their expenses. So it's a huge, it's a huge uh, expense cut to have those things lower, and it's a huge expense increase to have those higher. And but for the sake of you know Martin O'Malley's followers, I mean he doesn't really have any followers, but you know Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton's, they're they're inflicting massive uh, short-term harm with this impossible and if it were to be achievable, incredibly destructive long-term goal. But it's it's basically they they get their positive feelings and and other people get a much more expensive and therefore difficult life. Exactly. And that, that's one, one piece of it that folds back into the sort of philosophical difference between someone who actually wants the price of energy, especially electricity, to go up. There are a lot of people, and the same with the price of gasoline, there are a lot of people that celebrate price increases because people actually end up demanding a smaller quantity. So if you want people to use less energy... If it gets more and more expensive, that's what happens. They don't really think of it in terms of these are real people that need to get to work and it's affecting their bottom line and they're actually having trouble paying bills. They don't think of it in those terms. They think of it in terms of uh, it's almost like they're playing Sim City and they want the <laughs> mac they, they want the macro economy to look a certain way and they want people to use less energy. And the one thing that they know will cause that is price increases so that across the board that you know they hate the fact that that oil is relatively cheap right now they hate the fact that we still have a bunch of really good coal plants uh, and they produce a lot of electricity and the fact that you know we had the shale boom we have a lot of shale gas that's now in the in the power grid mix it's actually there were a couple months in 2015 that were actually natural gas generated electricity overtook coal so it was actually gas that overtook coal. It wasn't something, you know, it wasn't one of the favorite technologies. It wasn't wind or solar. It was gas. I don't know how I've gone this many minutes in a discussion of this issue without using the proper term, which is unreliables, to right. discuss uh, solar and wind. Uh, this will be the last time in my life that that amount of, uh, you know, that amount of time transpires. Oh, I had, now I, I had forgotten that. So then I remembered that, and then I forgot another observation that I had, which I'm sure will occur to me. 
well, I, 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 I also I also want to drop a footnote here. When we're talking about renewables, the thing that bothers me about that term is not not the fact that not not the actual term itself. I mean, the fuel is is renewable. Um, I guess the thing that bothers me is that the focus, the only scope of discussion is on the fuel itself, where, say, if you have a natural gas plant, the fuel is relatively cheap as opposed to, I don't know, there's relatively expensive plants too. The The thing is, why would we choose to focus on the fuel? It's You have to take into account everything. So it's not just the fuel input. It's, okay, when you build the plant in the first place, uh, what is the cost of that? So you have the capital cost of construction. You have sort of ongoing operations and maintenance that are not related to fuel. Uh, all of this stuff has to be levelized over the life of the plant. So if you have a very short-lived plant, which um, wind and solar are actually some of the shortest lifespans in terms of power plants. So a coal plant, we still have a bunch of coal plants from the 1920s in operation, and that's an amazing fact. Uh, I don't think we have any solar panels from the 1920s still in operation. I think their lives tend to be in the 15 or 20-year range and something similar with wind. Um, but if you look at the levelized cost of electricity, that is the crucial thing to examine, not the cost of the fuel. So you have free wind and sun, uh, and that's sort of a poetic, glamorous way of seeing what people call renewables because they're focusing on the fuel, which is renewable, which is the air moving or the sun shining. And that's a very poetic way of thinking of it. But in order to capture that energy, you need to build a structure. Uh, you're already departing from nature, quote unquote. Um, it's not a natural way of doing things. So the fact that people have such a poetic view of wind and solar power, I think it's actually just, I don't know if it's a function of just very good PR from the wind and solar lobbyists, from the industry itself, but it really is, it fascinates me that that's what people focus on. It's the fuel and not anything else, not these giant metal blades or, you know, you cover fields and fields with solar panels and I don't think there's anything natural about that, but somehow it captures something very poetic about using the sun and the wind for power. Well, I think even even fuel is too generous to describe it. I think of it as the raw energy because fuel is easy to equate with a finished product. Like, you know, I fuel my car, but that's that's the end of the manufacturing process, whereas the raw energy is just one part of the beginning of the process. So, yeah, I, I think of it just as energy manufacturing or, or it's just the whole manufacturing operation. You know, if I think of it like just a big factory, uh, basically the question is how much does this thing cost? And then at the end of it, I get energy. You know, I get some form of, of usable energy. And if you, you think of it as a process, it's it's a very different kind of thought process, uh, no pun intended, involved in, in a very different, very different uh, way of looking at it. But I think a lot of a lot of the failure of education about these kinds of issues and is is broader than just this. It's it's just the failure to explain what technology is and how intricate it is and how much of a, a process there is. It's there's just a magical view of things. Like, oh well, you know, my iPhone, it's just here. And not appreciating the entire process by which it's here, including the heavily industrial parts of the process. And I think that uh 
the digital technology industry has a certain incentive to keep it that way because mm -hmm. that makes them seem detached from so much of physical industry. People just see, oh, I got my little device here and I charge it in the wall and that seems pretty clean. And yeah, what happens when I throw it in the trash? I don't really know. But, you know, versus seeing all the smokestacks and the planes and, you know, the trains and the trucks that are making it it possible. Like if you saw the, the whole process by which your iPhone gets made, to me, it's a beautiful thing, but it's it's considered bad. Now, before we wrap up, uh, now, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about this, so you can well, say you don't. Well, I've, I've, oh. I've got one, I've okay, got go one piece of pop culture I, I want to throw in here because I, I think this fits perfectly. And yeah, it's, it's the idea that to the end user, it's very clean and simple. And it's almost so simple that it's magical. So you just plug it in and it works. Uh, I was watching Chelsea Handler and her episode on Chelsea Does Silicon Valley. And she was, you know, it, it's it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix show. And she was at Netflix headquarters and she was asking about streaming. She's like, well, how does streaming work? What? How does, how does it work? And the guy's answer was, it's like electricity. It just works. Uh, uh. And, that, and we, we just have that. We just have sort of everything so simple to the end user that, yeah, you, you don't, it's kind of nice that you don't have to think about it, but at the same time, you know, these same people that think it's super easy are voters and these same people tend to like wind and solar and they, so they make choices assuming something's easy, not knowing everything that goes into it. Um, so I, I, I thought that was crazy. Just, yeah, that, that's actually the, the way that a lot of people think about electricity. Like, I don't know. I don't know how it works. It just works. Oh, Netflix, what are, what are you doing to us? So last, last topic, what are your thoughts on, in particular, the energy rhetoric from the Republican candidates? Now, you're 501c3, so I know you can't endorse anyone. I'm not asking you to. Uh, and I don't know if – I'm guessing you can say something about the rhetoric or what they're saying or what they're not saying. And if you can't, then that's that's okay, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, I'll speak more from my personal capacity and not from my point of view at, at Institute for Energy Research, um, which is a C3. Um, but we also have the American Energy Alliance, which is a C4. Um, so w we actually have a scorecard on, on that. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the details of that. I actually haven't been following it. Um, I'm on extended leave right now. But anyways, the in general, I'm very disappointed in, in the fact that these candidates haven't sort of taken up your point of view. And I wish they would, because um, generally it comes down to choosing industry and being pro-business as opposed to, I mean, I always look from the point of view of the consumer. So it doesn't actually matter if I support, say, uh, the ethanol industry in Iowa or uh, the coal industry in West Virginia. It's All of that stuff is sort of secondary to the main question of what's best for, you know, in, in your words, you would say human progress. Uh, it, I think that's the same if you're asking an economist like me, that's the same as saying what's best for consumers. So the fact that that's not the framing, I think all the, uh, all the answers that follow from that are just wrong and nonsensical. Uh, so it's a pretty consistently, I'm, you know, I, I don't really like what I'm, what I'm hearing from candidates on, on either side. Well, neither do I. And those of you who do not either uh, go to America's energy opportunity.com 
and encourage politicians to actually talk about this opportunity that we have. Uh, I mean, technologically, the, the, the good news is we've made amazing progress in spite of our politicians. So amaz imagine what we could make if our politicians were actually pro-progress and therefore pro-freedom. I notice on this uh, scorecard that the Ted Cruz gets a hero status, Rubio, Fiorina, and Bush get a defender status, Trump, Kasich, Christie, and Carson get a doubter status. I'm not exactly sure what that. And then Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton get a, a villain status. Perhaps O'Malley was on there until he got uh, not until he left until he left the race. So I'm not sure. People, uh, we can link to the scorecard as well. And one one thing that's worth noting there that was sort of used to be thought of as a third rail in Iowa is that you can't come out against the renewable fuel standard. Which again, that's that word means nothing. What, what, what they're talking about is forcing ethanol into gasoline. So you you couldn't come out against that in Iowa because of the corn in Iowa and because it, it, it goes against their producers' interests. But the fact that Cruz won in Iowa, I think, sets up an interesting conversation about, you know, is, is it okay to be against ethanol? I, th I think that's actually one of the, in terms of public opinion on quote-unquote renewables or unreliables or uh, corn fuel, uh, I think that's one of one of the first things where people are starting to see the downside of mandating uh, bad energy choices and forcing them into either gasoline or onto the grid. So I think as those things become better understood, so as as we get more and more subsidized wind on the grid and we see the problems that come from that, uh, as we get more and more subsidized ethanol in our gasoline, we'll, we'll, we'll be more and more familiar with the downside. And I think sort of the rosy concept of renewable or, you know, natural, all of that, I think that will start to be exposed for what it is, which is just you know, an industry handout pretty much. I did see Cruz in, uh, many months ago at an Iowa event, and he was the only one of the candidates who said the right thing on this issue, and he got the most applause. And I think it's just one little showcase of how actually standing for a clear positive idea, in this case, a competitive market where the best win without subsidies or favoritism, uh, you know, that was a, that was a very compelling thing that he did. And to the extent he's he's done that in the uh, in Iowa and and more broadly, he's been compelling. But I think there's just so much more that people can say about the opportunity that we have and about the virtue of using the most life-enhancing sources of energy here and around the world. So I, I will link to American Energy Alliance's a scorecard. People should also check out Institute for Energy Research. Travis, where else can people find out about you? Uh, well, we have a project called Story of Electricity, and you can go to storyofelectricity.org. Uh, you can find my work on the IER website. And one thing I want to highlight is the work that we're doing on the levelized cost of electricity. Uh, one key thing that we've added to the conversation is pretty much everyone so far in terms of the politics and in terms of, you know, if you're going to choose one source over the other, everything is forward looking in the sense that we're taking almost like a, a grid that doesn't exist. And again, it's the Sim City, it's the central planner kind of mentality of choosing sources. Uh, we're all but ignoring the existing sources on the grid. So what we've done is on top of what the uh, 
EIA has done to the Energy Information Administration. They they keep I think they do a pretty good job of it, but it's the levelized cost of electricity going forward for new sources. And that's looking at like if you're building a plant now and it comes online in five years. And that's interesting, but it it lacks context in terms of comparing those to plants that are existing that are being closed early while they're still functional. So you have long economic functional lives of existing plants that are actually being closed by EPA regs and things like that. Uh, so th we've added some context and we've done a levelized cost of electricity from existing sources. And that's something that I'm very proud of the work that we've done on that. Um, we've paired with a guy named Tom Stacy on those. Um, so that, that I think is a very important piece of the conversation, especially for, for reasons that you talked about, we should care about the cost of electricity. We should keep it as low as possible. People's lives depend on that. So th the fact that most people are ignoring the cost of electricity from existing sources, uh, we find that troubling. We've added that to the conversation. I think people should pay more attention to that. All right. Well, we will post that as well. Travis, thanks for being on the show again. Thank you. Thanks again to Travis Fisher for joining us on the show. I want to keep the momentum on the topic Travis, tra Travis, Travis raised at the end about the election, about how the candidates are not making energy an issue, about how they should make it an issue. And I'd add how, given that I can say this, I don't, I'm not part of any, you know, government subsidized or tax-preferred organization, given that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton certainly are not champions of energy, so I will not be voting for them. Uh, we need those who are potential champions of energy to A, champion energy, and to B, have the right messaging. And the right messaging, I believe, is at the core the messaging of America's Energy Opportunity, which is at americasenergyopportunity.com. And we will also be supplementing it with much more detailed messaging on, on all the issues, and in particular the environmental issues, which I don't think the candidates right now understand how to frame properly. So I'll be doing everything I can, including reaching out on my own to those campaigns, having allies reach out to those campaigns. Uh, but I think it'll be incredibly helpful if we can make a statement to those campaigns that we want energy freedom, that we want to seize America's energy opportunity, not squander it. So again, that's americasenergyopportunity.com. With that, let's wrap up. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. You know, I haven't gotten much uh, love mail lately, but, but not much, really not much hate mail. So tell your friends who might write hate mail to to uh, subscribe to the podcast. And then if they decide they want to write love mail instead, which I can understand because the ideas on this show are true, they should at least tell me that they came in prepared to write hate mail. That would be a good, a good kind of testimonial uh, for us to, to get. All right. But anyway, Alex at industrialprogress.net. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. There's the Alex Epstein account, Center for Industrial Progress account, I Love Fossil Fuels account, and I Love Nuclear account. Finally, our one-stop shop for everything is industrialprogress.com. All right. 
that is all for now. We will be back next week with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.